Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Judges chapter 3. And we were there last week. We're going to begin today in verse 12 in just a moment. The title of this morning's message is When the Enemy Grows Stronger. When the Enemy Grows Stronger. We've been studying a series of messages so far in the book of Judges that we're calling, the whole series we're calling, Why We Need Him. I can't think of a better book in the Old Testament that better approximates where we are as a church in North America. We, we need to hear the message from this ancient text. The song we just sang, I don't know if we realize how true it is. That Jesus is the only name we need. Not just to save us for eternity and take us to heaven. But Jesus is the name that you and I need every moment of every day. I need him more than anything else in my life. In the book of Judges, we have seen what happened when the first generation coming out of the wilderness enters the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Initially successful, they began a process that God intended would take more than one generation. But the generation that even came in with Joshua began to falter and to fall short of what God intended. And because they fell short, the next generation was even less interested in doing the will of God. And then another generation came that completely forgot God altogether. And a cycle develops in the book of Judges. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Last week we looked at the first judge, Othniel. Today we're going to look at a man named Ehud. And we find his story in Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Would you take your Bibles and follow along as I read? And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because... They had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you would come, opening our minds, the depths of our soul to the truth, enable us to hear your voice, Enable us to see ourselves in the story. And I pray, Father, that you would use it to move us, to change us in this generation. Father, we need you. Help us this morning to understand why. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The story goes on and describes how Ehud, a left-hander, from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, under the pretext of delivering tribute, taxes that were being exerted on the people 
by Eglon, appears before him, makes the delivery, starts home, gets partway and turns around and comes back purportedly with a message, a secret message, just for the ears of the king. And Eglon, and the story is almost comical, uh, believes him, asks everybody to leave the room, they close the door, and, and Ehud draws close. And he says, I have a message to, for you from God. And taking his left hand, he grabs a dagger specially crafted for the occasion and drives it into the abdomen, the belly of the king, kills him, locks the doors, and then exits through a back porch and escapes. The servants, thinking the king is just busy uh, maintaining himself, does not disturb him for some time, allowing Ehud much time to escape. Ehud goes, blows a trumpet, begins to gather all the people together. They form an army, and they come against the armies of Moab, and they defeat them. They, they crush them, and 10,000 warriors of Moab are killed, and the people had peace once again for the next 80 years. The story of Ehud. I want to remind you of something that we looked at earlier, that when you and I look at these stories in the Old Testament, they are not just there for our entertainment and enjoyment. They're there as instructional uh, accounts with a message for us today. I want to call again your attention to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, that says, now, this is Paul writing, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, or our warning, or our caution. And so when you read these stories in the Old Testament, we can study that, we can look at the facts, we can look at the history, we can look at the geographical setting. But if we don't understand that God is wanting to speak to you and me through these stories, we have missed the point of the Old Testament. So God wants to speak to you and he wants to speak to me through these accounts and this morning particularly from the story of Ehud. Now, by way of review, last week we saw the cycle of God's way with his wayward people in the story of Othniel, the very first judge. And the, the cycle looks like this. We saw first that God sees what's happening in my heart. He sees that I'm being drawn away from him, that I'm distracted, that I'm caught up in sin, that I'm not pursuing him, that I'm not seeking to please him. God sees my heart. The second thing that happens is that God sends pressure into my life. He does it a lot of different ways. We see this even in the book of Judges. But he allows some pressure, some conflict, some stress to come into my life. Now, he's not doing that to punish us. Who's the only person who could ever die for sin? Who's the one who died for our sins? Jesus Christ died for our sins. And so in the sense of paying for sins, uh, God is not punishing us, but he will allow the consequences to come. And every sin we saw last week has built-in consequences. And so God allows those consequences to unfold, and pressure begins to build. The third thing that happens is as that pressure builds, God waits for me to turn to him. He waits for me to turn to him. Now, here's the question you have to ask yourself. Am I in the advanced group or am I in the slow group? I don't know about you, but more often than not, I find myself in the slow group, waking up to what God is saying, waking up to what God is doing. 
And so he waits for me to turn to him. And then what we see in Judges again and again is that moment comes and an individual or a generation turns again to God and cries out to him and realizes he's the only one that can rescue them, which brings us to number four. God delivers me from the enemy, but more than that, and to himself. That's the cycle in the book of Judges. We can see this in each of the stories that are told in this book. And it's something that we are told is written as an example for you and for me. Does God still work this way? Yes. I wouldn't get too hard and fast on what he's going to do each time, because even in these stories we're going to see variety. But, but he does work this way. He does bring discipline, correction, pressure into our life when we disregard him and ignore him as his people. Now, I want, to, I want you to see something in verse 12 that is stunning. Let me read it again. I don't know if you saw it when I was reading this passage uh, about a month ago. This just jumped out at me. Verse 12, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, look at this. So, the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Is that surprising to you? Does it, does it not capture your attention that God would go to an enemy of his own people and strengthen that enemy against his own people? That's always protected us from our enemies. I thought he was our shield, our rock, our hiding place. Yes, he is. But he's also our father. And like any good father, he's going to correct his children. And so it says he strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. If this is an example for you and me, if Judges 3.12 is written as an example, there are two very important questions we need to ask ourselves. Here's the first one. Why would God strengthen the enemy against me? Why would he do that? And I said it last week. I want to say it again before we go any further. Not every problem you have is this. Not every problem you have is this. Every time you have a problem, it does not mean that God is angry with you or God is seeking to correct you or discipline you. We learned from our study last summer, for example, in 1 Peter, that there are stresses, there are troubles. Jesus said you're going to have trouble in the world, that there are stresses that come into our life, and God is not allowing those stresses because we are wandering from him, although that may be the case, and you, only you can decide. But he allows those stresses to come in so that our, pray, our faith can be grown, our faith can be strengthened, our faith can be proven, our faith can be purified. So there's other reasons why difficult things may come into our life. And it's not only because you've been running from God or you've been ignoring God, but you have to decide. I mean, only you can decide what it's about. And whenever you're in difficulty, one of the very best things you can do is go to the Lord and say, Father, how do you want me to respond to this? What is this about? How do you want me to respond? I wouldn't ask him the question why in the sense of challenging his authority or challenging his love for you because he loves you. But it's perfectly all right to say, God, how should I respond to this? Is it me? Is this something I have done? Is this something where you're trying to capture my attention because I've been running from you? Or is this simply one of those times where you're calling me to trust you because you want to grow my faith in a world that's hostile, in a world that's dark? 
Let's go on this track. Why would God strengthen the enemy against me? What can we learn from this account of Eglon and Ehud? Number one, the first reason is because I need to wake up to my true spiritual condition. There are times I need to just wake up. Look again at verse 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Did you notice anything about that verse? He says something twice. And when the Bible repeats itself, it's very significant. And he's making a point. The evil didn't bother them. It wasn't disturbing to them. They didn't appear to have a clue that there was a problem with their behavior, their activity. They had become insensitive to God. They had become insensitive to what pleases Him. And they really didn't care. They knew who Yahweh was, but not for themselves. It was a second-hand faith, maybe a third-hand faith. Oh, that was fine for my dad. That was fine for my parents. That was fine for my grandparents. But I don't need God. And every generation has to discover that they need God. Sometimes that's difficult to watch if you're a mom and dad or a grandparent. But every generation has to make that discovery. But here's what you need to understand. They need to make that discovery. But dear ones, we don't discover it when things are going well. It's a rare person who discovers they need God when everything is wonderful, when everything is good. More often than not, it's when things fall apart that we begin to know that I need God. It's when things are are unexplainably difficult, when I can't take another step, when I find that my resources and my abilities and my talents and my safety nets are not working, it's then that I realize I need God. And it becomes a wake-up call for my spiritual condition. And so that's one reason why God would strengthen the enemy. They were doing evil in the sight of the Lord, but they didn't seem to have a clue. Second reason why God would strengthen the enemy against me. Number two, because I am embracing what I should be fighting. Look again, um, I want us to go back to the very beginning of this chapter, Judges 3. And Judges 3 opens up and it gives the foundation, not just for what happened in the days of Othniel that we studied last week, but also in this incident with Ahud. Listen to what it says. Judges 3 verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. I don't know if you realize it as you've been studying Judges, but it was entirely possible that God could have completed the task of subduing and driving out the Canaanites with Joshua and the men that were with him alone. But God didn't do it that way. He intended that it would take not just one generation, but several generations to complete the task. And each generation needed to know how to fight the enemy. You see, I fear we don't know how to fight the enemy. I'm not even sure we realize we're in a, in a war. And these dear people did not know they were in a war. They didn't know, 
They didn't know they weren't supposed to settle down with these people and marry their sons and daughters and worship their gods. They didn't have a clue that they were supposed to fight them. And they needed to learn that. God had a couple reasons for leaving them there. One is that they would be tested. Would they be faithful? The other is that they would learn to fight. We need to learn to fight. Joshua, the very name Joshua, means to deliver or to rescue. And one of the derivations of that name is Yeshua. Guess, guess who Yeshua is? Jesus. And the name means the same thing. Jesus and Joshua are, are equivalent names in, in Hebrew. They mean the same thing. Yeshua and Joshua mean the same thing. Jesus is our deliverer. Now, do you realize that when Jesus died on the cross, for all intents and purposes, all the spiritual battles for all eternity were finished? He could have expelled in that moment every instance of darkness in the universe. Just on the cross, by the shedding of his blood, by being obedient to the Father and the death, at his resurrection, he became victorious, and he became the Lord of lords and King of kings. And at that moment, he could have expelled all darkness from the universe. But he didn't do it, did he? In fact, as you read the New Testament, we discover that you and I are still in a spiritual conflict. We're still in a spiritual war that he calls us to engage in, to, to fight. And so we, are, we have got to, to fight. You say, well, pastor, what is that about? Well, there, there's, we don't have time to go into to all the, the teaching in that area about why there's spiritual warfare, but let me just, let me just use this analogy. Uh, not long ago, we observed D-Day. Uh, the day, June 6, 1944, when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy, and the Germans understood that at that moment, for all intents and purposes, they were going to lose. The war was over, but it continued on for another 11 months or so, 10 or 11 months. And in fact, during the battles that ensued, the Battle of the Bulge, more casualties were experienced in that year than at any other time in World War II. And yet, the victory had already been assured with D-Day. And these troops were going in as occupying troops. They were occupying more territory, and as they occupied more territory, they drove the enemy back further and further and further. Listen, that's what we're called to do today. You think, why is Wynn Baptist Church in Wynn, Arkansas? We have a task. We have a battle to fight. We have territory to take, and our calling is to drive the darkness back. Not settle down and live with it, but to drive it back. But here's the problem. Instead of the fighting the enemy, we have a tendency to hang out with the enemy. I'm talking about the spiritual enemy. Um, in verses 5 and 6 in this chapter, we saw last week how they, they dwelled among the Canaanites, then they married, they formed bonds, legal unions with their sons and daughters, they got married to them, and then they worshiped their gods, and suddenly what the enemy values, the people of God began to value. What they thought was important, the people of God began to think was important. What they were striving for in life, the people of God began to strive for the same thing. They were totally influenced, totally Canaanized, when in fact it was supposed to be the other way around. They had embraced what they were supposed to fight. The truth is, is that God wants every generation of his people to know how to fight a spiritual war. 
Every Christian here is in that battle, whether you understand it or not. And right now you are standing and winning or you're losing ground. God wants us to fight the same way they fought in this day and time. He wants us to come to trust him fully by faith and to follow him every step of the way. And he will, his promise is, is that he will enable us to stand. He will enable us to defeat the enemy. He will enable us to take the territory that the enemy currently possesses and push him back. We will not embrace if we are busy fighting. Now, you know that we're not talking about flesh and blood when I talk about fighting. But we do have an enemy to fight, and we have to fight him God's way. There's a third reason why God strengthens our enemy. He strengthens us to wake us up, strengthens the enemy to wake us up. He strengthens the enemy so that we'll learn to fight. But number three, he strengthens the enemy because I'm going deeper into sin than the generations before me. He's going to strengthen your enemy if you do that. If you go deeper into sin than your daddy, if you go deeper into sin than your grandfather, he's going to strengthen your enemy. In verse 12, the Bible says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what's misleading, most of the translations don't translate again as a verb. But the word again in the text is a main verb in the original language. So let me give you a literal translation of what's being said there. Literally, it says this. The children of Israel were adding or increasing evil doings or evil activities in the sight of the Lord. They were adding to them. They were increasing them. Forget what the generation before Othniel did where they were oppressed for eight years because they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. This generation was adding to that. They were increasing that. They were going deeper. They were embracing it more fully. And dear ones, as you read the book of Judges, it's a story of each generation going deeper and deeper and deeper in their rejection of God and their rebellion of God. They were going the opposite direction. God didn't save you so that you could be a bigger sinner. God saved you so that he could purify you, change you, make you more like Jesus. He wants you every day. He wants you to give your heart to him. He wants you to love you with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. He wants you to give him your hands. He wants to, you to give him your feet. He wants you to give him your body, your mind, all that you are, so that you become holy or set apart, belonging to him. And the rest of your life as a Christian, that is your calling, is to become more and more his. In Romans 6, 19, the apostle writes, For just as you presented your members, your body, as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, now that you know Jesus, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. You and I know, we've studied this, we've talked about this, but if I indulge my flesh, even innocently, it wants more. It's not satisfied with a little bit of sin. And so whenever you and I indulge a little bit, it wants more and more and more. That's why we're told not to make provision for the flesh. Not to have a part of my life where I say, okay, I'm giving God this part of my life, but this part, you know, this, this part I enjoy. And on the surface, it may be innocent. But by not giving it to him, it becomes a place where the flesh can operate and the pool can grow and grow and grow and grow. Sin doesn't stop with just a little bit of fulfillment. 
So the Bible says that while they were adding evil things, evil doings in the sight of the Lord, at the same time, God was adding to the power of Eglon. Do you get that picture? While they're adding to the evil doings in the sight of God, God is adding to the power of the enemy. That's the first issue. Why does he do it? Here's a second question that that should come to mind when you read about God strengthening the enemy. Second question is this. How does God strengthen the enemy against me? How does he do it? We've seen why he does it, but how does he do it? In uh, verses 13 and 14, listen to what, when the, the Bible says God strengthened Eglon. Now listen to what happens with Eglon after God strengthened him. Listen. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Now what you and I need to see is that when God strengthens the enemy, he's weakening me. When God strengthens the enemy, typically he's giving the enemy something that I should have, that should belong to me. And we see this in the text. So how does God strengthen the enemy? The first thing he gives him is influence. He gives the enemy influence. In verse 13 it says, Then he gathered to himself all the people of Ammon and Amalek. That word gathered means literally harvested. He didn't have any trouble doing it either. Now Ammon and Moab, they were descendants of of Lot, Abraham's nephew. They had been born out of a sinful relationship, out of incest. And they were the descendants of Lot. And uh, Amalek was a descendant of Esau. Amalek were the first ones to attack Israel after they crossed the Red Sea. That was the time when they began to learn to fight for the first time. And Moses began to pray. And as long as his hands were lifted up, they prevailed against Amalek. They began to see that the battle belongs to God. And so he harvested these people. He, He influenced these people. And he did it with ease. What does that mean for you and me? It means I lose influence. When God strengthens the enemy, I lose influence. Our mission is to carry the gospel to the entire world, to every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl in Wynn, Arkansas, Cross County, Northeast Arkansas. That's our assignment. God's called us to do it. They're not going to come from Korea to win the people in Wynn, Arkansas. We're the ones that are called to do that. We are the missionaries here. And when we allow the enemy to be strengthened, the influence is taken away from us, it's given to the enemy. The enemy wins. The enemy gets the influence. The enemy gets the people. The enemy wins the hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You lose your mission. You lose your purpose. And he says you'll be trampled. You'll lose. You're not worth anything. A Christian is not on mission. God loves you. But you're out of fellowship with him, and you are not in his mission, in his purpose. And when you're not part of that purpose, you've lost your purpose. And he's going to give that influence to the enemy. God intends that we influence the world. And if we don't do it, we're going to be trampled by the world. And I I believe with all my heart we're seeing that in North America, in the North American church. I can't speak for the third world church. The church is growing too fast to talk about them. They're reaching people, they're reaching their countries, and they're doing it in the worst possible circumstances and with the least amount of resources. And we have the best of circumstances, the most resources, and we are struggling just to hang together. There's a second thing God does. 
how he does it. Not only does he give influence to the enemy, he also gives them success. In verse 13, it says, he went and defeated Israel. That word defeat means to hit something so hard that it breaks into little pieces. He just crushed them, just crushed them. And so they began to learn defeat as a way of life for 18 years. Just a way of life. They just gave up fighting. They didn't fight anymore. It wasn't until Ehud showed up that they began to mass some kind of defense. They were just smashed to pieces, lost the entire will to fight. Has the devil taken the fight out of you? Is there any fight left in you? Have you gotten to a place in your life where you just acquiesce to sin? We're supposed to drive it out of our life. But you just acquiesce, said, I can't defeat this. And you've just given up. See, when he gives success to the enemy, he gives defeat to us. And, um, and so we don't want to be in that position, losing victory. Now, there's a third thing, a third way he strengthens the enemy. He gives them territory. In verse 13, it says he took possession of the city of Palms. You know what that was? Jericho. I mean, you can preach that one on your own. You don't need my help, do you? When Joshua came into the promised land, what's the first place that was defeated? Jericho. What did this guy do? He came and took it away from him. And so when he gives them territory, we lose territory. There are things that God has for you to do in your life that he has purposed and that he has planned and that's on his heart for you. And because you are his child, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God has a plan for you. We just talked about this Thursday morning. A group of us are, are meeting up here on Thursday mornings, and, and we talked about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, Paul writes. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, God has things for you to do. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for your life. And what happens is when we're disregarding him, we're doing our own thing, we're rejecting him, he strengthens the enemy. And one of the things he does is you lose territory. You lose something that God had in mind for you. It was their birthright to keep Jericho. It was a symbol of their victory and a symbol of the promise of God that they could do everything God told them to do. Everything. And you can do everything God's told you to do. So he does it by giving territory. The last thing he does when God strengthens the enemy is he gives them control, control. Verse 14, so the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Now it's an old song, but it's absolutely true. You've got to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody. If you blow off God, if you say, God, I can run my life. I don't need your help. I don't, I don't need you directing my life. Or if you try to treat God just like an assistant, your personal assistant, you go to him only when you have a need and have a problem, that's not bad, but he's supposed to be far more than that. He is your Lord. He is your king. And if you refuse to serve him, guess what he does? He allows pressure to come into your life and someone that you're going to have to serve. Someone you're going to have to serve. And, and you're not going to like it. You think the people like serving Eglon? I don't think so. And uh, so you're going to serve someone if you refuse God's rule. And so that's why he does it. That's how he does it. Let me close by calling your attention to verse 15. And this is what you need to see. Because I, I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I do know that this is, this is something he wants us to learn from. It's a story he wants us to learn from. Something that really happened. 
but it's very hard to read Judges and find a role model and I can say, hey, do these three things and you'll be a great man of God or woman of God. Because as we're going to see, even the deliverers here are not the most stellar individuals. We'll see that as we continue our study. This is a book about the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. That no matter how hard we run, how far we run, and how wicked we may see our life, if you know Jesus, you have a Father that loves you and He's pursuing you and He wants to bring you back to Himself. In verse 15 it says, but when? And if I was reading that in my Bible, I'd circle it. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, son of Gerah. You know what that tells me? That tells me first that God is in control. From the beginning of this story to the end of the story, God's in control. God was protecting those people when they rejected him. He's the one that brought Moab in. He's the one that brought Eglon in. And when those people cried out to him, who got rid of Eglon? Ehud. And, and who raised up Ehud? God did. And so God, from beginning to end, is controlling this whole story. Nothing gets to the people of God until God says they can come. And nothing is driven away until God drives them away. And so he is sovereign. He is in control from beginning to end. Whatever you're experiencing in your life, he is not out of control. He is not wringing his hand saying, what am I going to do about this person? They're in trouble. I'm not tells me he's waiting. He's waiting. It says when those people cried out to him. When they did it. That very moment is when God heard them and God responded to them. He's waiting. And it took one year, two years, three years, 18 years. Slow group. 18 years before they cried out. And then God heard their cry. It tells me God is gracious. That when people cry out to him, in that moment, God hears. Are you at that moment? The other night, uh, again, I had run over to uh, Mississippi to see her family. And we got back, and we had a little bit of time, so we decided to go walking. And, and um, we went walking on the track here near the church. As soon as we started walking, this little dog ran up, started walking with us. I never saw him before. He probably belongs to one of you. <laughs> he didn't have a collar. Uh, he'd been beat up at some point. Um, he ran, but he ran, he was gimpy. Uh, I called him Buddy, the elf dog. And uh, for the short acquaintance that we had, I gave him a name. And he walked with us lap after lap after lap. He just stayed right there. He'd run ahead. He walked beside Gail. He made a friend in Gail. And I started talking to Gail as we were walking. I said, huh, he doesn't have a collar. He said, yeah, but he's somebody's mama's dog. He's somebody's dog. I said, yeah. But maybe we ought to take him home, put him on the back porch, give him something to eat. But boy, he's got to be thirsty. But he's got to be thirsty. Look at his tongue hanging out. And he, she says, well, yeah, but he, he belongs to somebody around here. He's, he's a runaway. He's an escapee, she said. And I said, well, he needs some help. So we go, I, the, the more we walked, the more he hung out, he just kind of stayed close. I, I heard his cry. He was saying, take me home. 
Somebody take me home. I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm thirsty. Take me home. And I had visions of Buddy living on my back porch. And um, right when we got done, I mean the moment we got done, some people rode by on bicycle. Uh, Buddy didn't give a rip about me anymore. <laughs> Buddy just ran after the people with the bicycle. I kind of watched him go. I thought, well, fooey on Buddy. <laughs> I had a plan for Buddy. I was going to take care of Buddy. He didn't know it. If Buddy had hung around, I would have taken that flea-bitten dog, put him in my car, taken him, put him on my back porch, and look, nobody, please bring any of those things to my house. <laughs> Don't do that. But I had a plan for Buddy. It was a good plan. But Buddy didn't want to keep walking with me. He was easily distracted. He was, he was crying out, but he quit too soon. He quit too soon. And if you're crying out to the Lord right now and you think the Lord doesn't love you because things haven't changed right now, because you haven't experienced his peace, his comfort, he hasn't stepped into your life, listen to me. Don't be like Buddy. Keep crying out. Keep crying out. God is in control. God is waiting. God is gracious, and God loves you. And if you don't know Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you today when we stand and sing to come. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Come, knowing that he died on the cross for you, carried your sins away, took your punishment, took your place. And he made provision so you could have a new life, not just through forgiveness, but by indwelling your soul. When you trust Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God will come to live inside you, and he will change you from the inside out. Baptism is just the beginning. Profession of faith down front, just the beginning of what he has in mind for you.